Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. While you're turning there, if you would, please rise as well as we honor the public reading of God's Word. You're looking at just the last four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12 here this evening. That's verses 29 through 32. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them, after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we consider this evening the instructions in your word with regard to worship, we do pray that you would open up our ears to understand, to hear the things which are written, that we might be able to give to you worship that is good and acceptable to you, that you might receive worship that you are pleased with, that you might receive the praise and glory and honor that is due to your name. Help us, O Lord, as we consider the temptation to worship you through the methods of the world. Help us, Lord, O Lord, to consider the weight of such a sin and help us to look to the things which you have commanded us to do in worship. Lord, we do ask all this not for our own sakes, but for yours, that you might receive the glory that is truly due to your name for all that you've done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, often often when we think of the theology of the Reformation, our minds go to the doctrine of salvation, that in the Reformation we have the great recovery of, of the doctrines of salvation with regard to Things like election, predestination, justification by faith, uh, a true uh, glorifying of the sovereign God in salvation. We think of those kinds of things. We think of the five solas generally related to the doctrine of salvation. But one thing that's very interesting to note is that John Calvin, when he wrote a letter to Charles V that's called On the Necessity of Reforming the Church, he writes and says that there are two main reasons why the church must be reformed why it must be reformed from its Roman Catholic ways and become a reformed church. And the two things that he says is that man must know the right way to worship God and the right doctrine of salvation. So the right method of worship and the right doctrine of salvation. I've said that most of the time when we think of the the theology of the Reformation, we think of the latter. We think of the doctrine of salvation. But for Calvin, he said worship, the right way to worship, and then the right way of salvation, and in that order. 
and in that order, the, the most pressing need for the reformation of the church, John Calvin argued, was so that people would understand the right way to worship God. Not the right doctrine of salvation. Of course, that's important. It's second. But it is, in fact, second. The most important thing is that people would know the right way to worship God. Now, this is all the more important if we think about it in our own context that not only do our minds typically go, typically go to the doctrine of salvation when we think of the theology of the Reformation, but most people in general have thought through much more carefully the doctrine of salvation than they have the doctrine of worship. Most people have thought through, what did the scriptures say about how I can be saved from my sins? And a much smaller number of people have thought through, if I've been saved from my sins and God wants me to worship him, what is the right method of worshiping him? What, what can I do to know that I am worshiping God in a way that is acceptable to him? We've thought a lot about things like justification by faith. We can talk about a lot of the different uh, doctrines of salvation that come out of the Reformation. But what is the doctrine of worship that comes out of the Reformation? What's the doctrine of worship that comes out of the Reformation? That is actually that has historically been called the regulative principle of worship. And it is for Calvin, it was the thing that was the most important reason, the, the first reason why the church must be reformed. And basically, to summarize the regular principle of worship, it is, is that in worship, our worship must be regulated by the word of God alone. We can do nothing besides those things which God has commanded in the word. Our worship practices are, be, are to be conformed to the pattern of scripture, and it cannot be added to and it cannot be subtracted from. That is the regular principle of worship, and it is, in fact, taught in, uh, particularly, we usually go to the second commandment. Here we have, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses' explanation, is expounding of the second commandment, and particularly these last four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12, I believe, is probably the most, the clearest expression of the regular principle in all the Bible. The clearest expression of the regular principle in all the Bible. You are not to worship the one true God the way that all the nations do via idols. Rather, the opposite is, not that you just do whatever else that's not what they did. You are to obey the, the commandments that God has given. You are not to add to it and you are not to take away from it. In the context of worship, you are to worship God in the way that he has commanded. This is the whole point that Moses is trying to make here. You are to worship God as he has commanded. And so Moses has talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we've looked at the, in the first 28 verses, you're not to worship the one true God in the way that all the, the nations worship their gods via idols. You're rather to worship in the place that God's chosen. And here, so that's the where of worship. And here in the last four verses, Moses is now getting into the how of worship. You are not to worship the one true God in the way that all the, the nations worship their idols. Rather, you are to worship God as he has commanded, as he has commanded, as it is found in the word of God. And so because this is such an important topic, we're going we're gonna to take the whole evening to discuss the regular principle and how it comes, how it is uh, grounded in this particular text to show that God's uh, true worship is only that which he has commanded. You, you cannot do something, you cannot argue that there is something that God has not prohibited, that he's not commanded, and yet I still have the right to do it. If it's not been commanded, it has been prohibited. And therefore, the only thing that we can do and that we should do that God accepts is in fact the things that God has commanded. Now, we'll look at this, this topic under really four different headings. 
Uh, I do want to explain a little bit more about the regular principle of worship as a whole, and we'll see how it comes from the text. So that's what we'll look at first. Then we're going to look at what true worship is according to the regular principle and is according to what Moses teaches in Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to look at false worship in the text, what false worship was in that day, and what it then will look like today, what it looks like today. And then finally, we'll look at the foolishness of false worship. And we'll see that uh, in a number of ways. The things that Moses was teaching in Deuteronomy 12, were they perfectly correspond to the temptations in our own day with regard to pure worship practices. Uh, the, 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 really, the exact same issues uh, are before us today as they will always be uh, before the church. There will always be the temptation to worship God in the ways of the world rather than the way in which God has commanded. And it is always the duty of the church to give to God the worship that is due to his name according to his commandments. So, Let's think about first then a little bit more deeply the regular principle. Now, I've, I've given a, a brief overview of it. The idea is that you must worship according to the word of God and that you can't do anything else. There, there's, there's nothing else that, that we can do. We, we can't say something has not been prohibited by God and therefore we can do it even though we can't find a command to do it in the scriptures. Uh, the other principle, the other uh, view, so to speak, is called the normative principle. And that's basically the opposite, that you... You can do in worship the things which God has not prohibited. If God's not said anything against it, I don't necessarily need a positive command to do a certain practice. I can, in fact, do it. So those are the, the two options within Protestantism. So in, in, within Protestantism, there is the regular principle, which has historically been the reform principle. And then the, secondly, there is uh, the normative principle. Now, and this is within Protestantism. In this case, both sides agree that we must do, that we should do, the things which God has commanded. We need to do the things which God has commanded. Sometimes in the, with, within the other camp, there are those who kind of water down the things that we are commanded to do. But in general, the idea is that we ought to do the things that God's commanded. Both sides also agree that we should not worship God via idols, that we should not do worship God in the way that he has uh, prohibited. Uh, this is, as, just as an aside, uh, this is, again, I said these are really two principles within Protestantism. And the reason I say that is because there are, in fact, um, worship practices, for instance, still to this day in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that, in fact, do allow the worship of God via images, that there is images within uh, the worship of God. And so that would, of course, be a step worse than even the normative principle of worship. So there, there you're actually allowing the thing which God has expressly prohibited. In the normative principle of worship, there is an allowance for the thing that God has not prohibited, in the regular principle, you can only do the thing which God has commanded. If it's not commanded, it is prohibited. Um, so that's just an aside. Uh, so the question, though, for Protestants is that middle term. We know we need to do the things God's commanded. We know we can't do the things God's prohibited. Is there something in the middle that I can do that God's not prohibited, but I can't find a command for it? That's, that's really the big question. And the normative principle says yes, and the regulative principle says no. In the regular principle, you can only do the things which God has commanded. Now, this is often the way the conversation goes. There's certain commands, and then there are certain prohibitions, and then there's this kind of murky middle ground that we need to decide. Uh, is it right to do uh, this uh, or that thing? That's usually the way the conversation goes. However, from this text, and even from the rest of the scriptures, it's not quite the way that the scriptures speak about the issue. It's not that there are things that God commands and then there are things that God prohibits and then there's something in the middle that he's not spoken to. It is actually the case that God commands certain things and he has prohibited everything else. Such that there really is only two categories that are recognized in the scriptures. 
there are only two categories. There are the things commanded and there are the things prohibited. And that is fully comprehensive such that the only thing that we can do are the commands. If it's not something that's been commanded in the word of God, then it has been prohibited. And this is something we see specifically within this text. You are not to worship God via idols. You are rather the opposite of worshiping God via idols is obedience to the commands of God in the context of worship. And you cannot add to it. You can't add to it and you can't take away from it. If you can't add to it and you can't take away from it, then the text is teaching that everything else is prohibited. Everything else is prohibited. There is no middle term. So we can even hypothetically say, well, what about the, you know, if we were to go with the normative principle way of thinking, well, what about those things which God has not prohibited and that he has not commanded? We would say, well, it's an interesting hypothetical, but it ultimately comes to nothing because there is nothing in that category. The scriptures say that there is nothing in that category. Now, you may think, how could this possibly be? How could it be that there are, in fact, things uh, that God has not commanded and that, and that everything else is prohibited? What about things like plays or things like a video production that you put on, on a screen uh, as part of your worship? Has God actually um, said, prohibited that kind of worship? Wouldn't this not be an example of some kind of middle term? You know, I don't see an ex explicit condemnation of using a play in worship. And yet I don't see a command to do it either. Would this be an example of what, you know, the nor someone who holds to the normative principle would say that this is perhaps a good thing to do in worship, that it's, it's okay. The problem is, the problem is, is again, in the text, the opposite of the worship by idols is the obedience to God's commands. The, what makes an idol an idol is not so much the visible representation, but rather the source of the method of worship. An idol is an idol because it is a method of worship that's been devised by man. And this is why there are ultimately only two terms. There's no, there's no middle term. Your worship practices can either come from God or they can come from man. It's not that there's the things that God's commanded, things he's prohibited. What he's prohibited is anything that's come from man. Anything that's come from man is prohibited because it's come from man. It is an idol because it's come from man. So, so think about the way that the scriptures describe uh, idolatry. Here, it is an actual image that is being created to be used in worship as part of the worship practices. Notice notice here again in the text, as I've, I've said this over the last couple of weeks, but it's important to keep in mind that with regard to the second commandment, there is a distinction between the first and the second commandment. Moses here is not speaking about the object of worship in the sense of who is being worshipped. The idea here is the method. Notice in, in the text, this is very clear. You are not to inquire the way that the nations worship their gods so that you can say, I will worship the one true God in a similar manner. Everything is about the method of worship. And the way that the people of the nations worship their gods was through their own ideas. They, they thought this, I think, is a good way to worship God. I will make an image and I will use this method for worshiping God. The problem is, is that that method of worshiping God is not divinely revealed. It rather comes from man. It does not matter so much if it is, as the prophets say, often describing idolatry as the work of man's hands. It doesn't matter whether or not that's a visible uh, working of man's hands or not. If it comes from the mind of, of man and is produced by his actions, then it is an idol. It is an idol. And in this sense, then, if we were to think of a play or a video production, which has no divine warrant for uh, being an element in the worship of God, it is conceived of in the mind of man and it is put into action through man's own efforts. And in that sense, it is exactly the same as an idol.
Its source is man, not God. Now, the reason this is important is because there's one very fundamental principle that we want to cling to within the second commandment. Why, it's so, why we even say this is the reason the church must be reformed is that God gets to choose the way that he's worshipped. God gets to choose the way that he's worshipped. He gets to decide what acceptable worship is. It must be worship that comes from him that he has commanded. Anything that's come from man is tainted by man's sin and cannot be an acceptable method of worshiping God. This is why as well in the New Testament that the form of worship that the Apostle Paul, for instance, condemns in Colossians chapter 2 is will worship, is will worship. The idea is it's a form of worship that man has conceived of in his own mind that he labors to do through his own will. Its source does not rise higher than the ground. Its source comes from man itself. And this is what what the Apostle Paul condemns. All forms in Colossians chapter 2, all forms of will worship. The only true and acceptable method for worshiping God is that which comes from God himself. There are only two possible sources for a method of worshiping God. We have no other way. You know, animals don't communicate to us. There's nothing else. There's no other kind of ways that we can come up with any ideas. It either comes from us or it comes from God. Anything that comes from us is condemned. Anything that comes from God is the right way to worship. And notice again in the text, verse 32, whatever I command you in the context of worship, be careful and observe it. You shall not add to it and you shall not take away to it. This is the regulative principle of worship. If you want to know what kind of worship God accepts, if you want to know what kind of worship you can give to God that expresses your true love to God, it must be the things which God has commanded. Now, one connection with a, a common doctrine of the Reformation that we, we think about often um, that this principle is consistent with is the doctrine of sola scriptura, the idea that we stand on the scriptures alone. When we talk about that doctrine, what we are saying is in a, in there, there are particular areas where we say we stand on the scriptures alone. For instance, the scriptures don't speak to you know what you're supposed to wear each day or um, how you get to work or what you eat for breakfast. When we, when we think, speak about sola scriptura, what we are saying is that with regard to faith, with regard to the things that we believe, the things that we are to do, those things are defined for us in the scriptures. And then also, particularly, worship. Worship is the other area where we say that we must stand on the scriptures, that the scriptures give to us the right method for worshiping God. And so, just as we would say, you know, it's part of the, the reason why uh, the Reformation happened. There are certain doctrines within the Catholic Church we say are not found in the Scriptures. One of them that actually came, a, 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 I believe, a bit later than, than the Reformation time is the Immaculate Conception of Mary, or at least it was popularized, um, it, be, it was popularized later at least. The Immaculate Conception of Mary is not found in the Scriptures. We would say there is no liberty that we have to believe that if it's not found in the Scriptures. And... And what the regular principle of worship states is that worship works the same way. If you are to introduce a new method of worshiping God, then it has to be condemned because we are not at liberty to add to the things we do in worship, just as we're not at liberty to add to the things that we believe about God. The regular principle of worship, therefore, is basically just an application of the doctrine of sola scriptura to the practices of worship. The idea is that we stand on the word of God and the word of God alone. And this is, in fact, a very gracious thing. 
It's in fact a very good thing because one of the things that was a problem in the time of the Reformation is that by the church overstepping its authority, it was actually binding the conscience of people with things that it should not have bound the conscience with. It actually enslaved people in a way that they did not need to be enslaved. And one of the things that the regular principle, far from being something that restricts us, is actually something that's quite liberating. Nobody, nobody in the world can bind your conscience to worship God in any way except for that which is found in the scriptures. Nobody. Nobody can command you to do anything that is not found in the scriptures with regard to the worship of God. This is, a, in fact, a great freedom, a great freedom that you have. Nobody can tell you that you don't love God, God if you do not do this thing. The response that you can give is, show me in the word that that's something that I should be doing. And if it, you can show me in the word, I'll do it right away. But it must be found in the word of God. Sola Scriptura, in every situation where it can be rightfully applied, is actually a defense of the liberty of man with regard to all things faith, practice, and preeminently in terms of practice, uh, worship. It is a preservation of the liberty that is ours uh, in Christ. And so that's a little bit about the regulative principle, what, what it is and how it comes from this particular text. The opposite of idol worship is obedience. There are only two kinds of sources for worship, God and man, and we must follow God. That's the idea of the regulative principle. You are not to worship God in the way that the nations do. You are only to worship God in the way that I have commanded you. That's what Moses says in his explanation of the second commandment. Now, let's think a bit more about true worship then. True worship. Notice in verse 32, we have uh, the great definition of what true worship is. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Now, there are a number of things we could say about Old Testament worship in light of this. All the, for instance, all of the Levitical sacrifices at their particular time that they needed to be worshipped. There was a particular order that we can discern um, from various places, uh, typically being uh, sin offering, uh, burnt offering, and then some form of a peace offering, depending on the circumstances. Uh, all these things we can say in terms of a, of a liturgy. But those are things that are not quite applicable to the New Testament in, in the same way, at least, you know, that the sacrifices have gone away. What can we say then about what God has commanded us to do in worship in the New Testament? Well, we can say is in 1 Timothy 4, 13, that we, as Paul instructed Timothy, that we are to devote ourselves, Timothy was to devote himself to the public reading of the word, to the public reading of the Bible. Our worship must include the public reading of scripture. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as it says in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. We're to pray in the context of corporate worship. Paul gives instructions in 1 Timothy uh, 2, uh, particularly in verse 8. We're to partake of the sacraments, as Paul uh, gives instructions with regard to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, and with regard to baptism in, in 1 Corinthians 1. And above all else, we are to devote ourselves to the preaching of the word, to the preaching of the word, as it says in 2 Timothy 4. Those elements of worship, we do because we have been commanded to do them. Because in the scriptures, it teaches that we must do these things. Now, you'll notice about these things is that none of them are flashy. None of them um, appeal to the outward senses in a way that would cause you to be greatly impressed. Uh, there are perhaps great orators that you can go and hear um, that was at least common, for instance, in the first century. That would be quite impressive with the, the rhetoric that they would use. You could go to a concert and be quite impressed. You could go see a movie and be impressed with all the technology and, and all the ways in which you can get such a great production or whatever else. We don't really have those things. We have very simple things. We sing, we pray, we read the word, we partake of the sacraments. 
We, we do these very, very simple things. And yet, and yet, even though they are not outwardly flashy, they are mighty and powerful. And the reason they're mighty and powerful is because these are the things that God blesses. These are the things that God has promised to bless. It's very, very similar. It's very much like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He comes to earth as a man and he has no outward appearance or majesty that we should be impressed by him, as it says in Isaiah. And so people just disregard him. They don't understand that what they are looking at, when they're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, they're actually looking at the eternal son of God. They don't understand that. There's nothing outwardly about his appearance that would have given that away. And yet he truly was the eternal son of God. And there is something of a correspondence with our worship. People can come and they can say, you know, nothing that you do is really that impressive. There's nothing outwardly in the things that happen that would lead you to say that this is something that's great. And yet, and yet, this is the place that you meet with the triune God. This is the place that you meet with the everlasting and almighty God. And just as there are many who did not have eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his lowliness, and they missed it, so too there are many who will come to, to church and they will miss, they will miss the glory of what happens. But for those who do have eyes to see, they recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And when, and when we gather to worship, we are entering into the presence of God himself. We are to obey the commandments of God, even though outwardly it won't be an impressive show. It's not to be an impressive show outwardly. It's to be a meeting place with God himself. Now, and that brings us then to a consideration of false worship in the text. False worship in the text. Notice the idea is, and, and where the temptation for the particular forms of idolatry are coming from, is that all the nations, are they, they worship their gods in a particular way, and the temptation is, we will worship the one true God in the same way. We will worship the God, the one true God, via idols. Now, often today, in Protestant circles at least, we're not tempted to um, this kind of idolatry, where there is you know, a physical idol that's made and it's used in worship. I'd mentioned that there, there are some that still uh, use this. And so that would be a temptation in those settings. But it's not typically the way in which idolatry takes place today. And that's because the method of worship that we are surrounded by today is not typically in that form. The, 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 the methods of the world that we are tempted to adopt in worship are not typically physical idols. However, that doesn't mean that we are uh, that we are immune to and have no experience of this same kind of temptation. Think about it. In the Old Testament, there were these great civilizations. They were mighty. They were impressive. If you remember when the reason why the people of God didn't go into the land the first time and why they had to wander around for 40 years is because they came into the land. They said, you know, we are like grasshoppers compared to these great giants. There's no way we can defeat these great and mighty nations. And so that's where the temptation is. Here are these great people who are so impressive and look at how they worship their gods. Would it not be good for us to look at this, these impressive people and to worship our God in the way that those mighty nations worship their gods? Is that not something that we should at least consider? Now, the way that that temptation translates into today is Look at all of the people in this world who are so impressive, who have so much power. Look at the way in which they use all of these methods to accumulate for themselves uh, all this power and wealth, all of the, this great following. 
should we not consider using these methods that all of these mighty and impressive people use when we worship our God? Will that not advance the kingdom of God if we do this? And predominantly, I think the, the, the main area in Protestantism where this is, has come into the church is through entertainment. It's through entertainment. It, it, would it not be good if we adopted the methods of entertainment that are found in the world? And if we do that, it attracts so many people. It attracts so many people to all these things. Think of all the of the famous people who are able to do so many things. Think of of the great use of technology that we uh, that that we can can use. And and if we do this, we will attract all these people. You see, the temptation is exactly the same. They're mighty. They're impressive. They are around us. They are using the ways of the world. And if we adopt their methods, then it will in some ways advance us. And Moses knows this will be the temptation. You're going to go into this land. You're going to dispossess these nations. They're great and they're mighty. And you're going to be tempted to worship the one true God in the way that they worship their gods. You see, brothers and sisters, the temptation with regard to entertainment, bringing entertainment, making uh, the worship service more like a concert or adding anything else in order to try to entice people to come in, it is the exact same temptation. It's the exact same temptation that was facing the people of God in the Old Testament. Think of the way it happened in the New Testament. It's slightly different and yet, again, very similar in terms of the, the principle of using the methods of the world. Paul makes a big deal in 1 Corinthians 1 about the way in which he preaches. The thing that was the ways, the methods of the world was a certain kind of rhetoric that was beautiful in and of itself, but was devoid of at least a, a content that was constant with, with the gospel. The idea was to bring glory to the orator. And so there is a, a way of speaking and you can even say, like, well, we've got to preach anyway. Why, why would we not use these kinds of methods that the Greeks use that have been so persuasive to, to make people so mighty and powerful? And Paul says, no, I completely reject that. Not to say that we want to sound bad when we preach. But the idea is, is that there is a kind of oratory that is focused solely on the speaker, making his words sound excellent. And that was a method. That was a method of the world that gained someone influence. And Paul says, no, we do not use the methods of the world in worship. We use only the plain statements that are not meant to elevate the speaker in such a way that it may confuse the hearer. Sometimes sometimes the, someone can sound very eloquent if he can speak above the people he's speaking to. We are rather going to speak very plainly so that everyone can understand. And the only goal is to put before the people of God the message of God because... That is what God has commanded. That is the element of worship. There is always a temptation. There is always a temptation in every age to adopt the methods of the world in worship rather than receive our instruction for worship from the one true God. There are only ever two sources, God or man. And our worship will always be plain, will always be in this sense simple because God has commanded us to do simple things. He's commanded us to do simple things. And this is the thing that he, the, the kind of worship that he accepts. And the reason, part of the reason for this is because if the worship is simple and then there are mighty things that are accomplished, if the kingdom of God is advanced and if people are converted and if the gospel of salvation goes forth to the ends of the world, if if saints are strengthened to the point where they're willing even to die for their faith, and you think, what did these people do? What do they have? They have only the simple and plain worship that's outwardly unimpressive. It must be 
It must be that they have a great God. It must be that they have a great God. And that is what worship is to do. It is not to point to ourselves. It is to be simple, but yet it is to be powerful because it points to the one true God. And so there is true worship. There's false worship. Now, let me just say this, too, about the foolishness of false worship, which we see from the text. Notice one of the things that Moses points out. There is this method of worshiping God that all the nations used to worship their gods through idols. But notice at the beginning when Moses speaks in verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess. These methods of worship are being used by these mighty and impressive people, but they themselves are being cut off. How, how foolish would it be for the Israelites to say, you know, to be so impressed with the Canaanites, say, oh, you know, these great Canaanites, they're so impressive, they're mightier than we are, we should adopt their forms of worship for ourselves. And they're doing that as the Lord is giving all of them into the hands of the Israelites. How foolish would it be? If, if their methods of worship are so great, why can't their gods defend them? Why, why, is, it that, uh, why is it that their gods are being trampled? Is it, would it not then be true that we should worship the one true God in the way that he has commanded? See, it's a, foolish, it's a foolish thing to try to get our methods of worship from those who are passing away. And the same is true today. It's sometimes easier to think about how that would be foolish in the Old Testament and miss the way in which it's equally foolish in our own day to worship the one true God with the methods of the world. But brothers and sisters, this world is passing away. All the methods of gaining power and influence in this world are passing away. They may have their place for this or that thing, but they are not to be used in the worship of God. All of it's passing away. None of it is going to last. Uh, you know, And this is all the more true after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the beginning of the new creation. How backwards would it be for us who are already experiencing the reality of the new creation than to look to the old creation, those who are mighty and powerful in the old creation, and to say, now, now that that stuff is passing away, I'm going to adopt those methods of worship, to worship the one true God. It would be completely backwards and foolish. Think, think of the, the distinction between the greatness of all these other methods and the things that God himself has given to us. They, there may be great use of technology, entertainment. There may be uh, influential speaking and the use of lights and uh, ways to produce emotion in people. But compare that to the word of God, which, which Christ promises that not one jot or tittle will pass away until everything is accomplished, as he says in Matthew chapter 5. The word of God will endure to the very end. This or that impressive thing about the world, it will come and go, but the word of God will endure to the end. Think of, the, of what, what is happening when we pray. We are pleading with the eternal God to bring about an eternal kingdom, and we are promised that he will, in fact, hear us. Think of even the way this happens in Revelation chapter 8, where it talks about the incense going up before God, which it, it interprets as being the prayers of the saints. The, the, the prayers of the saints go up to God, and the whole world is shaken, and the kingdom of God uh, is advanced. Think of the sacraments. They are signs and seals of communion with Christ. They are, they are even as we saw this morning, they are things which point to the consummation of all things. They are the things that which will be here until the very end and will ultimately be fulfilled in the last day. They are things that will, in this sense, and at least their fullness, the things that they, that they point to, will never pass away. Brothers and sisters, it is ultimately foolish to pattern our worship off of a world that is passing away when God has given us eternally significant things in the context of a new creation that has already begun. This is 
the teaching of the scriptures on the right method to worship. If you were to ask, what is the right way to worship God? What is God has God commanded of me? This is exactly what the second commandment is about. You are not to worship the one true God through idols. There can be no worship practice that comes from man that is acceptable. And the opposite of that, the opposite um, responsibility, if you are to keep the obligation to keep the second commandment, the positive thing that you must do is worship the one true God in the way that he has commanded. The opposite of idolatry is obedience, is obedience to the things which God has commanded. Now, brothers and sisters, it is very important that you be grounded in this principle. We, we understand, naturally, the importance of justification by faith and all the other doctrines that I had mentioned, the, the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation and, and all of the doctrines that come along with the Reformation. But this, brothers and sisters, worship is the highest duty that you have in this life. It is the highest duty that you have in this life. And not only is it the highest duty, but it is also where the greatest blessing occurs in this life. The greatest blessings of life are found in the worship of God. It is here. It's here that the knowledge of God increases, where we actually meet with God himself. And it is this that, brothers and sisters, that you, you can know that you are growing in grace if you prize and are increasing in your prizing of the worship of God. And that it is more and more important to your soul and to your heart that you worship God in a manner that's acceptable to him. And this is what Moses says. You are to worship the one true God in the way that he has commanded. Even as John Calvin and the Reformers generally in the 16th century said that the most important thing is to get worship right, so too it is true today. May God grant that his church would worship him purely. And may in so doing, may he receive the glory that is due to his name for all that he's done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do worship and adore you. How good it is to receive from you the commandments with regard to worshiping you. Lord, we are so thankful that you have revealed this to us because we as those who have been redeemed by your Son. We long to worship you in the way that is pleasing to you. We long for it, O God, to give to you the worship that is due to your name, to express to you our love for you in a way that is acceptable to you. Lord, we're so thankful that you did not leave us in the dark, but that you did teach us the right way to worship you. Father, we do pray that you would help us, that you would implant these truths deep into our hearts, and that we would be zealous not only for the right doctrine of salvation, but even for the right doctrine of worship. For Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.